Welcome to Full Rigor, a Florida true crime podcast. I'm Karen Curtis. And this week, we're going to talk a little bit about police. Here's some audio from body cam footage from police in 2020. Jeremy, drop the gun! We don't want to shoot you! I'm going to take a shot. Back out. Back. Hey, hands straight out, dude. Stay on the ground. Keep your hands out in front of you. Where's the, where's the gun at? Where's the gun? Stay on the ground! He's crawling towards it. Where's the gun? To the right left. to the left. To the left of that backpack. Yep. That's tough to listen to. And this happens every day in America where police pull up on a routine traffic stop, which, by the way, there is no such thing as a routine traffic stop. Timothy McVeigh, who blew up the federal building in Oklahoma City, was pulled over in a routine traffic stop. So you never know who you're pulling over or what's going on. This guy apparently was armed in front of a residential building and wouldn't put the gun down. So, uh, Every case is different, but there seems to be a spate of shootings involving African-Americans. Are police colorblind? Now, Derek Chauvin, ex-Minneapolis police officer just convicted of murdering George Floyd, guilty on all counts. He's the officer who had his knee on Floyd's neck for over nine minutes. Really horrible, hard video to watch there. So now, really, the knee is on the neck of law enforcement as a result of that. But still, this happened. It was just a uh, horrific scene. Horrific video. Protesters planning to hit the streets again in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, over the fatal law enforcement shooting of another black man, Andrew Brown Jr. His son describes the body cam footage he saw of his father's death. They were shooting at the very start of the video. My dad, he was on the steering wheel. Hands on the steering wheel. Hands on the steering wheel, yes. And uh, they were still shooting. So the 42-year-old was shot last week trying to drive away from his home. Deputies were serving a warrant for his arrest. And attorney for the family, Benjamin Crump, yep, he's the same one that represented the Corey Jones family here in South Florida. Of course, the Floyd family, basically all the families that are in the crosshairs of police officers. And he says that this guy's car was riddled with bullets. Now, Attorney General Ashley Moody of Florida today issuing a disturbing update on the dramatic increase in Florida law enforcement officers killed in the line of duty. She says violent attacks against law enforcement officers are on the rise. So far this year, in 2021, 11 law enforcement officers have died in the line of duty compared with two line-of-duty deaths during the same time period last year. More than half of those deaths are attributed to violent attacks on officers. And so far, the state of Florida this year has proven to be the deadliest state for law enforcement officers in the entire country due to felonious acts. Even in the face of these disturbing numbers, Florida law enforcement officers do continue to show up daily to protect Floridians. And this is not my first podcast on police shootings and bullets going in both directions. So people are dying on both sides. In one episode, I covered the slaying of a Palm Beach Sheriff's Officer, Sergeant Rocky Hunt. That's episode 29. The PBSO deputy 
Rocky Hunt, was slain in 1993 and is the last Palm Beach County officer shot in the line of duty. His killer, Nicholas Hardy, turned the officer's gun on himself but survived. He, like, shot his face off instead. He put it under his chin. He was sentenced to death but now is serving life in prison. Then, if you want to check out episode 97, Florida jury convicts a cop who shot a black motorist. Palm Beach County is one of the first places where a jury convicted a police officer of shooting and killing a black motorist. This was, of course, the shooting and killing of Corey Jones, a church drummer. And the officer, Newman Raja, has been sentenced to 25 years in prison. Corey Jones, you might recall, was standing outside his broken-down SUV on 95 in the middle of the night when Newman Raja, who was in plain clothes and did not identify himself as a police officer, came up on the broken-down vehicle. And apparently, Corey Jones was armed with a gun, but he never shot it. So this case had a lot of impact on the murder trial of the Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin, I believe, in the George Floyd case because the jury made it possible to convict. The Corey Jones-Newman Raja case happened back in the fall of 2016 with Newman Raja being convicted and sentenced to 25 years in prison in 2019. But unfortunately, police officers continue to shoot black suspects. Do we need to change policing? Is there systemic racism in our police departments? So I thought it was a good time to talk to an expert about policing in America. So let me introduce you to Sergeant Jeff McGreevy, who is an experienced law enforcement officer. Hey, thanks for joining me and tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Uh, I was a police officer for 29 years. Early in my life, I I was in the Marine Corps. I joined the Marines when I was 17 and I was in the police academy. Thank you. In the academy at 21. And um, I just always wanted to serve. I wanted to serve my country. And when my tour was up, I decided that I wanted to serve my community. So I uh, was a police officer in Southern California for 29 years. And I did a lot of different things. I was a patrol officer. I was in SWAT for about 10 years. I was a canine handler. I became a detective. And then I started getting into community policing. And that was where I had some of my best years was uh, learning how to interact on a, at a higher level with the community and, and build relationships. I retired last year, and I'm now the program manager for 911 at Ease International. I'm using my experience for community policing and relationship building and, and also in our wellness programs to continue to help police officers and firefighters and their families uh, with stress management with the 911 ADs International Program. And what at ease is, is we pay for counseling sessions for first responders and their families so that they can stay strong and continue to serve. This trauma support, peer support type of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was on our trauma support and peer support team for about 15 years. Um, I was the coordinator for the last six years of my career, and that training and experience really led me to my next mission, which was to just continue to help our, our first responders. Well, that's really good because, you know, they're the first line of defense. Uh, they're the ones heading in, especially paramedics, with this COVID situation and the pandemic. They were the first ones on the scene. And, of course, police officers, you know, they're the first ones to get the call when there's a problem. And then they have to figure out what to do once they get there, which now may be changing. But I just want to back up the truck momentarily, Sergeant McGreevy, and talk to you about you became a U.S. Marine at 17, and then you entered the police academy at 21, and you were a sergeant. But this was in Southern California, so you were there for 29 years. Were you there during the OJ situation? 
I was. Um, I, you know, I started my career right after Rodney King. So the, the year that the Rodney King incident happened, I went into the police academy and started my career and kind of got the tail end of that and went through the, the trial. And then, yes, um, you know, in, in the mid nineties, when the, when the OJ trial happened, we were you know, about 40, 40 minutes from where all that stuff was happening. Uh, so let's talk about Rodney King just briefly. Do you, as a police officer in Southern California, in hindsight, do you think the jury got it right that they didn't convict the police officers of brutality? You know, that's a really touchy situation because what I think is that those police officers, the ones that were using the force, weren't as well trained as they should have been. And that I don't think that they were trying to be abusive. I think they used bad tactics. And I think that they were doing what they were trained to do. And that there was a failure of leadership at that scene. The sergeant that was there at the scene had plenty of people where they could have tackled them. Now, fast forward now, something like that would never happen. No. I mean, the Rodney King case was really one of the first instances where there was videotape of what was going down between the cops and the suspect, the beating. Really, you know, and now you've got body cams. And so when you look at someone like an ex-officer, Derek Chauvin, where there's not only body cams, but there's a a young girl with her cell phone video or recording it, I should say, rather. Um, So you're always under a microscope as a police officer. Now you would think he's got his knee on this guy's neck for nine minutes. He knows he's being recorded. Why would he do that, whether on camera or not? And you sit and you, when I watch that as a professional police officer and go, I can't believe that in the 21st century that there's a police officer that's doing that. Because if there's a, if there's a fight and a struggle going on, there's nothing unreasonable with, you know, we call it using a trap. It's a, it's a defensive tactics technique where you can use your knee to hold someone in place while you're maneuvering to handcuff or to get them under control. But they had that person under control and We've, we've had plenty of situations that have happened where people have died of positional asphyxia. And, you know, the department that I worked at, I mean, it was, we don't, we don't leave people in that prone position any longer than, than necessary because people have died from that. And I'm not saying that, that, um, because there's been some incidents that we had that the person was overdosing on drugs and we got into a fight with them and then they had a, a heart attack. But then you sustain this liability because it gets blamed on tactics that the police use. But looking when, when I watched that video, I really was disappointed in what I was seeing because nobody's trained. There's no police academy. There's no training that teaches you to, to keep a person in a prone position unnecessarily with your knee on the back of their neck with the full weight of your body on them unnecessarily. We put them into a recovery position, which is getting somebody on their side. Because if you got an ambulance coming, you're going to get them, put them on their side or sit them up. And then if they start fighting again, well, then you change your tactic. But what they did is they kept this guy down for an, an unreasonable amount of time. And with the, the pressure that was put on his neck and the totality of everything that happened, it's not just one thing that, that killed this man. There's a totality of things that happened. And then the worst possible outcome is what happened is that, that the man passed away and he, he should not have died. If he was having a medical emergency, there's ways that we could mitigate that. Let's get him on his side or sit him up and maintain control of him while you're waiting for the ambulance to come. It's, yeah. it's real, that's, that's what I think was really preventable. Whether or not there's a camera or not, it just shouldn't have happened. But I know that there is something called excited delirium. You have to face that. Yes. I, inter- I interviewed our chief of the fire department 
woman here in West Palm Beach, Diana Maddie, and she explains that these people, when they have excited delirium, are just strong and it's almost like superhuman strength and it can get very scary. So this obviously wasn't the case with George Floyd, but do you then say, okay, well, he's claustrophobic and doesn't want to be arrested, so I'm not going to arrest you? I mean, how does that work? No, what he was doing was being difficult. He was giving the officers a hard time. Part of that could have been because he was under the influence and he was he was tripping out on some substance he was using. But he was being difficult because they just wanted him to go in the police car and then we're going to take you to the police station and then you can kind of get on with life and we're going to process you. And then he won't get into the car. And I've seen this dozens and dozens of times where people, they're just being difficult. They want to fight you. Like they're refusing to get into the car. There's no pretty way to force someone to get into the back of a police car. There just isn't. Right, it's difficult. But does this now make it so that you don't actually try to force them because something might happen? Well, it's a case-by-case situation. If they're having a medical problem, and uh, you could call for an ambulance to transport them if you're going to go to the hospital anyway. You know, or there's... I see. Um, That's a, a smart thing to do. Yeah, I mean, if you've got somebody, and you brought up excited delirium, and, and that was never anything that was part of this case, but it, that is real. I've dealt with people that were experiencing excited delirium, and, um, you know, it, it's it's a scary situation because um, they're, they're unpredictable, they're very dangerous, and yes, they can have... Especially bath um, salts. But, no, I didn't mean that George Floyd had uh, it, I, but you're right. Yeah. It, it does happen. But yeah, there's, there's other means, and there's... Look, they could have called for a van to come pick him up if they had access to that. And then there's other restraint devices that are out there that um, where you, a group of people put them into a soft restraint device that kind of closes up the legs and, and then you can uh. put, put them back to the seat. But, you know, those things are just, it's not pretty to look at. Um, but he just didn't cooperate. He was just giving them a hard time is what he was doing. He's like, he was making a scene a hard time. But in the end, when they had him outside the car and they did that call for an ambulance, but you have to maintain the person in a safe condition. You know, we see what the end result uh, was a, a bad tactic and in, in putting someone into a position that they really shouldn't have been in for that prolonged period of time. Now, it's sort of like the Rodney King thing with that there was bad policing on the ground and bad leadership because if Chauvin was the leader, the other police officers were like, I think you should let him up, you know, and yeah. they weren't being listened to, but now they're being charged for something he did. Yeah, this case is going to be a great lesson for failure to act and the type of training that will come from this because young officers look to the more experienced officers for leadership. I mean, they're the ones that have been there, done that, whether they're their training officers or just that senior officer that's supposed to be a mentor for these younger people. And although they thought like, hey, man, we should move this guy. You got the more senior person saying, no, we're going to hold here. And he's kind of subordinated to the more senior, more experienced person. Right. That ends up being the leadership failure of the most senior person there on the ground that couldn't step back and take a look at the whole situation that's happening and going, okay, we need to, we need to make a change here. We, what's, what's, how do we change our tactic here? Yeah, and we're speaking with Sergeant Jeff McGreevy. He is a Marine, right? Once a Marine, always a Marine. Uh, and What's 29 always? years with law enforcement in Southern California. Which agency were you with? I worked with the city police department okay. in, Ven- in Ventura County. Ventura, okay. 
So you also were a SWAT officer. I must full disclosure tell you, uh, as a news anchor here in Palm Beach County back in the 90s, I was the first woman they invited me to try out for the SWAT team. And I was That's a runner. Amazing. I, yeah, it was. And I, I, we videotaped everything. And I was a runner, so I beat all the guys in the two mile. And I was a really good it. shot, but I couldn't carry an officer out of the building. And I couldn't do the rope climb. I'm like, I have no upper body strength, so I would be no good to them. But you smoked them on the run, I so did. good on you. <laughs> Thank you. It's not much of a help if I can just run away from people. I need to be able to carry them. <laughs> but you were on the SWAT team for 10 years, and we had a situation where we had some FBI agents that were shot during the serving of a warrant. And there's what this, this tunnel of, of, what is it, the tunnel of danger? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I mean, well, the front door of a house, that, that fatal, we call it a fatal funnel. The fatal funnel. And, tunnel yeah, of fatal danger. Funnel. And, <laughs> Yeah, and it's just, and I don't know all the details of exactly where these guys are standing, but, you know, when you're outside the front of somebody's house, you don't know what you're walking into, and um, they, I'm sure, I don't know if he, I think he shot through the door, and I don't know exactly where they yeah. were standing, but that was just such a tragedy, But and it, it's happened many, many times. I had it, when I was a young police officer, I uh, knocked on a door, and this someone flung the door open, and they had a rifle in their hand, yeah. and thank God it was BB. It was a, thank God it was a BB gun. I mean, I was off that porch and, you know, had my gun in my hand without even thinking about it. And luckily there was no shots fired, but you know, this person thought that for some reason they thought I was a bad guy that was, you know, knocking on their door and some person just totally overreacted to the situation. But yeah, those, those poor, uh, those FBI officers, they were working a really difficult case with a really bad guy. And, um, he was there waiting for him. He had cameras, outside but he could see what they were doing and they were just were at a complete disadvantage yeah the guy inside had a ring doorbell and he could see exactly where everyone was now you're lucky yeah. with the guy that came out with the bb gun because you could have shot him not knowing it was a bb gun and would you have been justified well it's just all every situation is unique and that if i would have used deadly force it, it could have been justified i mean someone's pointing a, a weapon what appears to be a weapon at you and you got a split second to do I live or die, get out of the way. And luckily I was able to get out of the way and reassess what the situation. And he also realized that it was a cop outside and not some, you know, crook from the neighborhood. And so that combination of everyone's reaction is what calmed the situation down. Wow, good for you. And you've also have a long list of commendations. The Medal of Valor and Supervisor of the Year. And you got the Chief's Award of Excellence. When did you get the Medal of Valor? I got the Medal of Valor in 1995 wow. when I was a youngster. And, you know, there are different things in different eras of your life. And so the Medal of Valor was a kind of a, a tactical situation where there was a man that was armed with a rifle that was trying to murder his family. And I was able to intervene and stop that. But then you fast forward 20 years. So the other awards that I got were really for my community engagement and working with the American Cancer Society, um, the Autism Society of Ventura County, doing a lot of fundraising for them. And then the Chief's Award of Excellence was really the kind of the cherry on top uh, right before I retired for just the, the work I did in 2020 with, with COVID relief and and uh, the fundraising that I did for the American Cancer Society. So it was, it was very honored and humbled to receive awards like that. Well, Sergeant McGreevy, it sounds like you did everything right as a police officer, but... 
the most important thing you did right was to come home alive. And you were in the FBI Amen. gang uh, task force and you were a detective. You worked with the gang and robbery cases. That's some, that's some big time stuff. Yeah. The work that I was doing as a detective was we were investigating violent crime and uh, most of them involved criminal street gangs. And so it was an honor to get to work along some really great people. And I, I was on an FBI gang task force for a very short time, but then I, I spent about eight years in our gang unit and then about two years as a, a gang detective. So we're just trying to do our part to keep the community safe. And that's the key word, community policing. The community is, you know, made up of many different types of people and knowing your community and how to deal with the people in the community is number one, I would assume for a police officer. So I know that there's a push to change the way we police in America. And I understand you're a white male. Did you ever fire your gun and shoot a black male or a black suspect? No, I didn't. Okay. Now, do you think that police officers are inherently and systemically the police department's racist? I do not. No, I don't. You know, and I'll tell you, our sheriff in Broward County, who is also African-American, Gregory Tony, believes, that, as you do, that the department is not racist. Yeah, so where's and, and this coming Tony, from? He's, yeah, he's, he's a great leader. And I think that there's a false narrative that's, unfortunately, it's on the news every day. But, you know, I worked with men and women from most nationalities, black, white, Asian, Pacific Islander, and we were brothers and sisters. And we went out into our community and we went to the calls that we were sent to. And we, we worked in the areas where the community needed us. And there's not a bias against particular people. We're just doing our job. And sometimes people get arrested that they may be disproportionately one race or another, but what's the population of the neighborhood that you're working? I worked in a community that was over 70% Hispanic. And so most of the gang members that I was dealing with were Hispanic because that's what the population was. And so it wasn't that I was targeting them because of their race, um, targeting people or I shouldn't say targeting, but, you know, contacting people based on the potential for criminal activity and what we were seeing. Now, we have here a new law, the anti-riot law. And with everything that's been going on in certain cities in America where they've been burning down cities and basically defying law enforcement uh, here, if you are arrested for inciting a riot or being part of a riot, you can get up to a decade in prison. And now BSO are telling their deputies to not enforce that law unless it's absolutely necessary and when it is necessary to call your commander and find out exactly how you need to proceed. Do you agree with the law or do you agree that BSO should be saying, wait a minute, hold back? Right. Well, I don't want to comment like on the specific statute because um, okay. I don't know what it is. But what I will say is that um, I think that you're your police and your sheriff should be allowed to do their job. And if, if people break the law, then they should uh, make the appropriate decision. And all of these things have to be measured. So I do, uh, you know, the leadership by making smart decisions, talking to your supervisors, and if they need a certain level of approval, then that's fine. As long as um, everyone is going through the chain of command so that they, they want to make a good measured decision because there's a spirit of the law and the letter of the law. 
And the letter of the law says one thing, like you've said, that, well, this particular law has a particular sentence potentially. That's not really what the cops on the street are looking for about how long you can go to jail for. We're looking at, like, is this a, a criminal violation and should we or should we not make an arrest? And that's where you have to be measured with what you do. You know, what's the overall goal of what you're trying to accomplish on that day? And if, if making an arrest is what's appropriate for the safety of the community, then those police officers and their supervisors will make the right decision. Well, the other thing that this law does is it prevents municipalities from defunding the police. What is your feeling on that? Does that, I mean, does that just lead to more violence in the streets if you defund the police? Yeah, the last few years we had had million dollar cuts that needed to come from our budget. What happens is that infrastructure things that you can't afford anymore because your budget gets taken away, you, you start to lose specialty units or community policing units, or it can affect the training budget as well. So when you try and defund, what happens is you just reduce. It's another word for forcing someone to reduce services. And that's what I see is that the basics that what we need to do is respond to 911 call. So when someone calls 911, someone needs to answer the phone and gather the information. We need to have police officers and, and deputy sheriffs to respond to the calls. Those are the basic functions, but then you have detectives or you have a community policing unit or you have a gang unit or you have a variety of other things, crime prevention units. Well, if you start reducing the budget, then they have to start looking at, okay, which units do we potentially have to disband and send them back to patrol because there's no longer a budget for, say, a community policing detail or a crime prevention something or community relations or, well, okay, we've now we've got to reduce our training budget to meet that demand. Yeah, or, you know, some departments are like, they can't even go respond to a traffic accident now because they don't have men to go out there to handle that. Yeah, they'll look at how do we reduce calls for service. And, you know, if you have a minor fender bender where that's a service, like when you get, okay, someone rear ends your car and you stand there on the side of the road and you're like, hey, I'm going to call the police and they're going to come out, they're going to take a report. Well, there's some departments go that actually we don't have the manpower to do that. And if it's just a minor little dent or you got your fender damaged or rear bumper, exchange information and you guys go through your insurance company and the police won't even respond in some cases because that's a convenience that's a and if they don't have the resources to do that that's where you see the inconvenience of where people are accustomed to when i call 911 no matter what i need they come out help right and because it's a luxury of like well no matter what the complaint is nine times out of ten the police are going to come out and even if it's a frivolous thing well Now you start reducing those budgets. Well, we're not going to be able to come out for some of those frivolous things anymore. Right. Well, we had a a situation back in 2016 where we had a police officer who was in plain clothes who came up on a broken down motorist, Corey Jones. He was a church drummer, African-American, and the officer, Newman Raja, pulled up on the scene. And Corey Jones did have a gun. He didn't fire it. But Newman Raja shot him and killed him. And now he's serving 25 years in prison. So our jury here in Palm Beach County was able to convict a cop who shot a black man. Mm -hmm. And of course, the family's attorney, Benjamin Crump. So it was possible. And I knew probably it might pave the way for what happened to Derek Chauvin. But now you've got a situation in North Carolina where there's also body cam video, which we haven't seen yet as of the recording of this interview. And the family saw part of it and said his hands were on the wheel of the car as he was driving away. They were trying to arrest him, uh, serving a warrant. So it's so difficult. And it's another black person that's been shot. Well, it's regardless of, of the color of the person's skin, it's the, the police 
have to be properly trained and use good tactics. And there's um, tactical decision making under stress um, programs out there that to, to help with things like this. But it's about the individual decision that that person made. And, you, you know, the example you made of someone that was convicted and a police on off duty police officer that was convicted. Uh, well, then a court found that that use of force was not justified and was not appropriate. And uh, I haven't seen the, the video. I don't think any of us have no. with the incident you're talking about is that if it was inappropriate, then I have no doubt that they'll, the people will be held responsible, but I hope people will just wait and, let the investigators do their job. Nobody's trying to hide anything. You're just trying to investigate it so they put out the correct information. Right. And then you've got the other officer, the female officer, who was a veteran police officer, and she trained people, and she pulls her gun rather than the taser. Is that a difficult thing to do? I mean, is that something that happens? I make mistakes in my job, Lord knows, but I don't have life and death situations going on. Yeah. And that incident was such a tragedy. And unfortunately, it's happened 14 or 15 times over the last 10 years. There's been several incidents where a police officer intended to use a less lethal device like a taser, and they ended up having their sidearm in their hand, and they used deadly force when they shouldn't have or they didn't intend to. And there's several incidents where that's happened. And that is a horrific thing to have to live with. Yeah, um, she remembered right after she pulled the trigger, she realized she shot him. Yeah, as well. You find out pretty quick yeah. when that thing goes off. Wow. And, you know, that was not a rookie officer. That was no. a, you know, she had 24 or 26 years on the job and under stress made a bad decision and um, tactically had the wrong tool in their hand for what they wanted to do. And they're going to have to look at how that happened because most departments you have the taser has to be on the opposite side. So like I'm right-handed. Non-dominant, right. My non-dominant hand and some departments have policies where they're like, you can't have them both out at the same time because Uh. they don't want that mistake to happen. It's not the first time that it's happened. And it's somebody that's under stress that makes a life changing decision, a mistake. And it's, it's a horrible, horrible thing that person and that family it's, it's tragic. It it's is tragic, tragic what happened. It, it shouldn't have happened. She's tried to resign, but they didn't accept her resignation because she would also then draw her pension. And now she's been charged, right. I believe, with second-degree right. manslaughter. But do you agree that she should have been charged for this error? A, a person lost their life, and the prosecutor, she's got to be held accountable for what happened. And then because she was charged, uh, she's got her right to due process and to go through a trial. And, and I will, I'll accept what a judge and jury says is appropriate for what happens because um, I've seen people get arrested for significant charges before and you know they can get reduced or altered. And we saw that in the Chauvin case where yeah. um, they, they're going to make their initial filing and then there'll be some kind of a change that'll probably come at some point down yeah, the road. Chauvin actually said he would plead guilty right after the shooting to third degree murder. And apparently the attorney general said too soon and not enough. But now there may be grounds for appeals, which is a whole other story. I'm not going to even go down that road. But we're speaking with Sergeant uh, Jeff McGreevy. Uh, He's been on the force or had been on the force in Southern California for 29 years. He knows his stuff. And I just want to get to the nuts and bolts of what's going on now with the the Republicans and Democrats talking about the George Floyd Policing Act. And they want to take away qualified immunity for police officers. The Republicans are like, no, no, no. Just take the immunity away from the police departments. I mean, that's where the money is, the deep pockets. That means that you would be able to sue individually the police officer or the department if something went wrong. Do you agree with that? 
I don't agree with that. I don't agree with lobsters not having the qualified immunity because they they do make life and death decisions in a split second. But there's already things in place that if people, if you violate the law, if you violate department policy, then that exposes you to personal civil liability already. So trying to just take away blanket protections from a police officer, like you're just going to de-incentivize people for like, why would you take on this job where if you make a small mistake that they can come and take your house and take everything you have? There's already things in place for that. Like if you're not following department policy and if you commit a crime, then qualified immunity doesn't come into play anyway but you've got you know some of these things that are gray areas and where the the police officers need to have protection because they're out there they're the ones that are that are going challenging difficult things and we expect the best from our police officers but we also need to support them does that mean that the person needs to lose everything that they own because of a split second decision that had no malice there was no ill will. They were just trying to do the best job they could at that time. The female police officer may lose her pension because they won't accept her resignation, but yet we had the school exactly. the school police officer who shall or will or didn't go into the Parkland school. Remember him? Mm-hmm. He didn't go in. I he's remember, he's yeah, retired yeah. and has his pension. Yeah, and it's because they, yeah, they allowed him to retire um, and that that's a whole other thing. Yeah, we, we've got a person that People are dying inside of a building and you're outside not going in to try and help and mitigate that. Um, yes, that shall was, or may. I, you could like, I don't know which one was which, but mm-hmm. you may go in or you shall go in. It's hard mm-hmm. to know what's supposed to happen. But I mean, if you hear shooting in a building, you seem like the kind of cop that would have run in. Yeah, I used to teach some active shooter techniques. And if you're out of school and you hear gunfire, every time you hear a shot fired, a child may be losing their life. And so we've got to get in action quickly and go and try and mitigate that risk. And we need to get between the bad guy and the people that they're trying to hurt. Because 20 plus years ago, the tactic actually was to surround the location, get more people there, and then go in. And you saw that in Columbine. And that's right. what, that was really the catalyst for changing active shooter entry techniques for schools, because that's what the training was. And I, I was in SWAT in the 90s, and that's what we were being taught was to get there establish a command post, surround the place, and this and that. Now it's complete opposite. Yeah, gather a quick entry team and make entry as soon as possible because these things are over in minutes. And if you stay outside, then it'll be over before you get inside That's if you right. don't do anything. And lives, lives, lives would be lost. But it doesn't do any good for you to go in and then you're dead, you know, but just a fine line. It's every every situation's different. You talk about the ultimate scary situation. Yeah. Is you hear gunfire inside a building and now you're being asked to open the door when everyone else is running away. But that's the burden that we take on when we take this job. But we've got to train our people to be able to handle that. I shouldn't be, not to be able to handle it, but to prepare them to make an entry when it's appropriate. There's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot of different techniques, but people have to be, and leadership. There was failures in leadership on that incident that have been widely written about one failure on top of another at yep. that at that incident. Yeah, case in point, bye-bye Sheriff Scott Israel. Well, as we have the old brass leaving and the new, the rookies moving up the ranks, that leadership will change and maybe the new leadership can be taught different ways of policing. You know, things evolve. Yeah, I think you have to be progressive and you can't do the same old stuff 
And I think we see that most departments are pretty progressive and they're advancing the way that they view policing. And it's not just cops and robbers. It's really about relationship building with the community. Because if you don't have the support of the community, then you really have no authority. So the more support that you have within the community, then the more leadership capital you have with the community and the more trust you build with the community. Ah, I think that's a perfect way to end it. That's excellent. You're right. 100%. That's the way it works, right? It's a, it's a two-way yeah, street absolutely. between the police department and the community. We have to work together. The community and the police have to work together and, and build trust and, and find those common bonds. And there's a lot of law enforcement agencies out there that are doing it right. And they sacrifice everything they have on a daily basis for you. Yeah, here in Florida, we're leading the country right now this year with the most police-involved deaths, most officers shot in the line of duty. So, And yet our officers still go out there and help Floridians every day. So... You know, thank you to you. Thank you for your service as a Marine and also as a police officer. And thank you for joining us here on Full Rigor. I really appreciate your wisdom. And, you know, I really feel like we kind of were able to maybe make some sense of what's going on. Absolutely. And we're, I appreciate your time today. And just, uh, if I could give one plug for our website. Yes, I'm so sorry. Yes. That 911 at Ease International. Our website is 911aei.org, and we're taking care of first responders. So that would be if you're a first responder listening to you and you are stressed or you have PTSD maybe, or well, how do you help yeah, them? Yeah, stress. We, we help them with stress, depression, uh, couples therapy. So we're in four states right now. We're in California, Idaho, New Mexico, and Minneapolis, and uh, we want to come out to the, to the East Coast, but if a first responder is struggling, they can go to our website and request services and we'll do the best we can to point them in the right direction. But we've got uh, a real strong presence on the West Coast and in, in Idaho, Minneapolis, and New Mexico. And uh, we're going to serve our East Coast first responders as well. Well, you definitely need to be in Minneapolis at this point in time. Yeah. Oh, is yeah. that a canine I hear? Uh, he wants to be. He's guarding the house. <laughs> I hear him. Oh, man. They're officers, too, you know. God bless them. All right. Thanks so much. Right. Have a great day. Okay, bye. Down, boy. <laughs> well, that was great. I wanted to update you on the story out of North Carolina. You know, Benjamin Crump, the attorney from Tallahassee, he's basically the main attorney who shows up and represents the families of these black victims. And there's been all too many of them recently. And here's what he had to say about this latest killing in North Carolina. It was a kill shot to the back of the head. So a judge just rejected bids to have that body camera footage of sheriff's deputy shooting Andrew Brown Jr. released to the public. But the man's family will be allowed to view the full tape. And here's Benjamin Crump. It's not enough to just get justice for this family because we know they keep killing us and keep making hashtags. We need to have transparency. So after the female police officer mistakenly used her gun rather than her taser to shoot an unarmed black man, the police department there immediately released the video the body cam video, but in this instance, it is not being released because Superior Court Judge Jeff Foster said turning over footage to news media would affect 
a potential trial of law enforcement officers who opened fire while serving a warrant on the 42-year-old black man in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. And quote, he says, the release at this time would create a serious threat to the fair, impartial, and orderly administration of justice, end quote. He also ruled from the bench that confidentiality is necessary to protect either an active internal or criminal investigation or potential internal or criminal investigation. And it also may just be a cooling off period. He says that that video may be released in about 30 days. We'll see. We're supposed to set the higher standards and the allegations that are made in this case uh, will be tried. A former Florida deputy is accused of being a really bad apple during a time when bad policing is under a microscope. 26-year-old Zachary Wester, a former Jackson County deputy, is accused of planting drugs on clueless drivers during bogus traffic stops while being recorded by his own body camera. He's finally scheduled to go to trial next month on felony charges of racketeering, official misconduct, fabricating evidence, possession of a controlled substance, and false imprisonment. There are 52 charges, and uh, they require, if he were convicted of all charges under our guidelines, approximately 13 and a half years in prison. Wester's trial is expected to begin May 10th. Prosecutors reviewed 300 cases involving Wester, ultimately dropping charges against 120 defendants. I think that wraps up this episode. And a big thanks to Sergeant Jeff McGreevy for joining me on this podcast. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram at Full Rigor Podcast and download and subscribe to Full Rigor. That wraps up Full Rigor. Thanks for joining me.